Hey guys, it's Matt here, and I got a story for you. When I was a kid, I was playing hockey, and oh man, there was this one year, this one team, we could not beat these guys. They were all over us. There were competitive games, though. They were tight, but we just could not beat them. And I remember the last game of the year, it was up against this team, and we were gearing up. We were like, we have to get these guys. When we won that last game, it was so satisfying because we finally got the victory over the team that had dummied us, that had dominated us for so long. I think this is the same thing with sexual brokenness, with sexual sin, where there's been brokenness in our lives and the enemy has come and taken ground and he's dominated us for so long, but we get to make a difference. We get to be part of a message and a a mission of freedom. It is such a cool opportunity. So I want to invite you, men and women of any age, to be part of the Action Squad. The Action Squad is something that we're putting together right now. We're looking for 100 people to be on the Action Squad. There's going to be some competitive nature to it. There's prizes. And we're going to work together to help produce a documentary that is literally going to change the world. We're featuring stories of sexual brokenness, of people who have been restored and redeemed, reconciled to God and to people in their their lives. And we're going to feature these stories in this world-class documentary that will be a resource for churches to host movie nights, for small small groups to watch together, for families to watch and be inspired by. And it's going to highlight the problem in the church, but also show the, the power of God that is at work when we bring this stuff to light. And so if you want to be part of the Action Squad and help us put this documentary together, I would love for you to go to restoredministries.ca slash Action Squad. You can watch a 10-minute video there that I put together on what it can look like for you to join us in this mission and be part of putting this documentary together. So restoredministries.ca slash Action Squad. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Pure Victory Podcast, full of hot tips to help you win at sex, conquer porn, and find purpose in staying free forever. Here are your hosts, Matt Klein and Brad Hafner. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Pure Victory Podcast. Thank you for checking in with us again this week. And we have a great conversation today with Nick Stumble. We are really excited to have Nick. He's a busy guy and has an important ministry you probably have heard of him, but he is the executive director of Pure Desire Ministries, which is so near and dear to me. It was one of the, the key ministries and key resources for myself, too, that, that moved me away from porn and got me into freedom and, and healing. And so I'm so appreciative of you, Nick, and, and the ministry Pure Desire. So thanks for taking the time to be here with us today. Yeah, so glad to be here. And you know, any opportunity to talk about the hope and freedom that is possible, you know, I say yes to that. Yeah, Nick, any, talk, any opportunity we can talk about it is so important because so often porn and sexual activity is done in secret. And we know that it's not, um, not something that's always talked about. So we love that you guys are doing what you're doing and that you're growing the ministry that you took over with Pure Desire that's really been a forerunner in this, uh, in this area. But why don't you just start by sharing your story? How did porn become a passion in your life? And um, even what was your struggle? What did that look like as a, as a child and moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. Good, good question. I mean, no one sets out when they're, you know, a 10 year old shooting hoops in their driveway to one day be the director of a purity ministry, right? Like that's, that's no one's dream, but that's certainly what God led us to in in my life. I, I, you know, I like to say I have a fairly typical story of struggle that many Christian men could identify with. Uh, Grew up in a very solid home. My dad was a pastor and a, a good dad and we had a good family. But like most Christian homes, we didn't talk about sex. I mean, we had the birds and the bees talk that one time, but that was, other than that, kind of the taboo topic. And so when I encountered some pornographic material at a friend's house at around 10, 11 years old, 
um, immediately had that experience of feeling like it was wrong. I shouldn't be seeing this. Mom and dad would probably be angry if they knew about it, so I won't tell them. But at the same time, feeling the pull towards the curiosity and what is this? And I've never seen this before and wanting to see more. And, you know, really between that push pull is where shame can develop a feeling like there, there must be something wrong with me that I like this because I feel like it's wrong and I don't want to like it, but I do. And of course, those are never conversations we had at home. And so my growing up years were that secretive struggle of every time being the last time. And I don't really want to do this, but but it's, you know, I'm a young guy and isn't this what young guys do? And, and then, so I'm kind of keeping it arm's length and then falling back into it and getting rid of it and just, you know, battling through that into college. Um, it was in college really that the internet came of age just as I'm moving into adulthood. And unfortunately, the ease of access, I think, took my struggle to another level. But at the whole time, I'm, I'm preparing for ministry. You know, and my heart was to serve the Lord. I, I was never living this double life of just hiding all these things. It, it was always a I'm sorry, Lord, I repent. I'll never do it again because my heart is for you. And I, I think really believing that that struggle would just, I would outgrow it. You know, I'd, I'd heard from enough married guys to know marriage wouldn't fix me, uh, but I thought just I would outgrow it, you know, in marriage and ministry. And so I entered into marriage and, and into ministry at about 22 years old, just confident that this would soon be a thing in the past and yet found that it kept coming back, um, even as a pastor struggling with binge times into pornography. And it was you know, I, I would have enough success, you know, a few months at a time where I would be free of it that I thought, oh, okay, I finally figured it out. I'm good to go. And, and then it would come back and I'd fall back into it. I'd choose to step back into it. And the the guilt and shame of that, just how can I keep doing this? I've got a great wife, a great job, and I'm willing to throw it all away. And, and I was really just stuck in that try harder mode. If I would just confess well enough, you know, renew my mind by quoting enough of the right verses and pray hard enough, I'll be free. Yeah. But after 10 years of that as a married man and 10 years as a pastor, I was stuck in the same binge purge cycle. And it was in 2010 that my wife and I were introduced to Pure Desire Ministries. I'm actually at a conference for pastors that I was at where our denomination was offering a pathway for healing for those who struggled. And, and I tell people all the time, I was not interested because I was so stuck in my rationalization and denial that and then I was in a little good period there. It had been a couple of months. I'm like, hey, I'm good yeah. to go. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, my wife was there too. And she knew that we were in a lot of pain. She knew she was in a lot of pain. And that offer to her was the answer to her prayers. And so I stepped into Pure Desires counseling program with you know a foot in my back saying we are going. And I was reluctant. I didn't think I needed help. I was stubborn and arrogant, honestly. But it was over that next year of being in counseling with Pure Desire and being in a group for men who struggled and my wife being in a group, um, it, it was life-changing because for the first time in my life, I understood why trying harder wasn't fixing it. it, was led through this process of understanding the deeper things in my heart and mind that were driving the behavior and how addressing those would create lasting change and freedom. And so at the end of that year for us, and, and not to say it's all done in a year and you move on, but... But when we hit that one-year mark was when we also shared our story with our church. So what had been a very private story became a public story in our church. And the reaction in our church was really phenomenal in terms of people feeling like if the pastor can be real about his struggle and be our pastor, then it's safe for me to be real about my struggle too. And we watched almost overnight our church culture transform from being very secretive and shame-based around pornography and sexual things 
to being very grace-based and people entering groups and us launching groups. And for the next five years, I tell people all the time that it was the most important discipleship process we ever had as a church, because I realized I could teach people all day long how to pray and read their Bible. But when their sexual brokenness would go unaddressed, it, it didn't matter what I was preaching or teaching. But when we help people meet Christ in the midst of their sexual issues and unwanted behaviors, they were not only finding freedom from their behaviors, but growing in their faith and becoming people who prayed and worshiped and read their Bibles because the freedom just led into everything else. And so I would really say it was my excitement over our own story and what was happening in our church that led to writing my first book and, and staying connected to Pure Desire by speaking at a few events. And in God's sovereignty, that's also what then led to them feeling like I was the right choice to become the director in, in 2016. And so we, at that time, chose to step out of local church ministry and left a church that we loved and people we love and all of our close friends in order to move down to Oregon and be a part of Pure Desire full-time. And, and now that's been five years. So getting to use my story, I think, is still the, the primary call in my life. Felt like one time God just said, if you will be faithful to tell your story, I will be faithful to use it. And, and that's something I've just been honored and privileged to watch over and over that when I tell my story, when we're honest, when we're vulnerable, God does something in other people's lives that say, you know what, I, I can go on the same journey. And so at the end of the day, for me, that's what it's about is helping other men and other women find freedom to know that real hope is possible, that we really can change, that this doesn't just have to be a perpetual binge purge cycle in our lives. And, and that's what pure desire is here to help with. So that's maybe what the, the five minute snapshot of, of my story and then where we're at today. That's great, Nick. You know, very often am I asked to share my story in five minutes and you did such a great job. So thanks for sharing that. And I picked up on, on a lot in what you were sharing. And I know that a lot of people, even like myself, when I was in the midst of that battle of struggling with porn, you get fixated so much on the actual behavior of porn yeah. use. You're just so focused on that one thing. Really, it becomes this kind of white whale in your life where you think, hey, I get rid of this, then everything else will fall into place. But we know that when you unpack that suitcase, right, you can't just remove one thing. There's so much more that we have yes. to unpack. And, you know, one of those things is shame. There's so much that comes with that. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding because when we hear the word shame, maybe there's, a, there's just a misconception that it, it's maybe this uh, metaphysical thing that is a, just an emotion or whatever else. But maybe break down what does shame look like when paired or overarching that 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 porn addiction? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's very, very important that we understand the concept of shame because I think when you get to the heart of it, one of the primary issues, if not the primary issue, driving people's addictive behaviors, and, and I think all addictive behaviors, not just pornography, really is um, an underlying sense of shame and worthlessness. So if you think about how we would define it, you know, guilt is based around I did something wrong. The guilt of a bad choice, a wrong behavior, I, I violated a principle, and I feel guilty like I did something bad. But shame is a deeper level of uh, feeling like there's something about my identity that is bad. So it's, it's not just about choices and decisions. About, it's about my character, my worth, and my value, and, and the voice that says there's something wrong with me. And so what I find is people can confess all day long, like they can deal with their guilt, but actually walk away with the shame being untouched because they feel like, well, I got forgiveness for what I did that was wrong, 
but under the surface, I feel like there's something wrong with me and how can anyone forgive me because that's just who I am. And, you know, part of it, I say this is coming out of my own story, but also, you know, I've now been leading groups of men through our seven pillars of freedom curriculum for 11 years and hundreds of men in those groups. And I would say 99%, if not 100% of them are living with some level of this phrase in their life. I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. I don't measure up. I'm not a real man. I feel worthless. And all of those are voices of shame that says there's something wrong with me. And, and what we find in addictive behavior, and especially pornography or acting out sexually, if we don't first become aware of that in our life, and if we don't address it, we can work on changing behaviors all day long, but either those same behaviors are going to come back or something else because the, the gnawing sense inside of worthlessness is looking for an answer, something that makes me feel good enough or worthwhile or like I'm, there is something that I'm okay and that's what pornography delivers. You know, even if it's just for a couple of moments where I feel good enough, like I matter, like I'm seen by these attractive women that I'm lusting over, the brain hooks onto that and goes, ah, I, I felt freedom from my shame. And so really what we're addicted to isn't even as much the images or the what we're seeing or entering into. It's actually that freedom that our brain feels. And that reward is powerful enough to take us back over and over. And so Hopefully you can see in that way, it is so vital that we deal with the underlying message of shame, because once we start to deal with that, then the outcomes or what we're looking for to answer the question really begins to change. Yeah, it's so true. All of that is so true. It, the The self-talk is something that I think points to shame. And so, like I always say, that shame is a primary weapon that, that the enemy uses. He tries to wrap us all in shame and starts right with Adam and Eve, right in the garden. The yep, first sin, he just wraps them in shame and he wants to do that with all of us. But a lot of us, like you say, and, and I agree that pretty much 100% of people, if not 99, it might be 99% of people have shame when there's addiction, especially. But how do you recognize that? Like, how does that play out in your marriage or in your ministry? Not just focused on sexual sin, but practically, what does that look like in, in somebody's life? I, uh, what comes to mind for me is the word intimacy. You know, and when I say intimacy, I don't mean sex. Unfortunately, we've made those two words synonymous and you know, nothing could be more further from the truth because it's completely possible to have sex without intimacy and have intimacy without sex. Um, by intimacy, I mean that sense of being fully known, that everything about me is known and that I feel fully loved in return. And that creates a deep closeness or bondedness. And it's what God speaks to us when, you know, throughout the Old Testament it talks about God knowing or even refers to sexual intimacy between a married couple in the Old Testament as Testament as knowing. Well, the word there is really defining intimacy of that fully being known and fully being loved. Well, the way we see shame is if there is any part of us that we feel is not safe to reveal, and often to those that are closest to us, we, we feel like there are dark corners of our life or our past or our choices or even our thought life that Nope, I, I can't reveal that because of the fear that if I revealed that thing about me, I would be rejected. I would no longer be loved. And so what's happening then is, is the love or acceptance we are receiving often doesn't go deep enough because we, we feel like people are only loving and accepting us for the, the part of us that we have shown to them. And the voice of shame underneath says, well, but if they knew everything, if they knew this piece, if they knew you'd done that, if they knew that choice, then you would be rejected, unwanted. And, and that really is a pocket of shame. And so uh, I often tell people, if there's anything in your life 
that you are convinced if it was revealed to others, you would feel smaller. It would make you feel diminished. It would make you question your value or worth or fear rejection. That's a sign of shame. Now, you know, as I share that, I can hear someone arguing like, I'm, I'm not trying to say that everybody in our life needs to know everything all the time. Like that, that's not what I mean. But there certainly need to be places in our life with people we love and care about that we feel like there, there are no walls. There are no protective closets that I've kept this stuff in order to still be loved, like I'm, I'm fully known and fully loved. And that's ultimately the intimacy that we can find completely only in Christ because he fully knows us and he fully loves us. But if, if we're convinced that we have to kind of play this game or, or kind of put on this show, even for people around us, there is an extent to which I believe we are also doing that with God, that, that we think we have to kind of put our best foot forward for God to love us. And we can even be stuck in kind of a performance pattern with God himself feeling like, well, if, if the real stuff was really there, I don't know if I'd be loved anymore. So shame just has a, a deep impact on all of our relationships, including our relationship with God. Yeah, it sure does. I remember when I was, I hadn't told anybody about pornography and it was, I, I guess I was probably hooked about eight years. And I remember the first time telling someone my heart was just beating like 300 beats a minute. It was just so fast and I was nervous. And, but I remember when I shared the next day, I felt like I was like a million pounds lighter. And then I remember a couple months after that, I shared for the second time and I shared for the third time. And every single time I shared, there was, there was less shame and I felt lighter every single time. And I remember that lesson that when we have shame, we got to get it out. But you talked about receiving. When we have shame, we, we don't receive the love that's given. Now, one thing with shame is we have to, we have to obviously get out our secrets and what you, that's what you talked about. But how does somebody receive, whether it's from people giving them love? or from God giving them love, because ultimately that really does trump the shame when they can receive love. Yeah, that, that's such an important question, because even in, even in revealing those parts of ourself, if we are so deeply stuck in a message of shame, even if people in the circle, you know, as we share it, receive it and, you know, accept our confession, we can walk away from it still feeling like, yeah, I mean, they, they didn't kick me out, but they all still think I'm a bum. You know, they, we can still listen to that message. So, yeah. It's really where I, I think the power of community comes in when there are other people around us that are committed to that same thing. Like this is what we see in Pure Desire about the power of a small group that isn't just based about the accountability of did you mess up this week, where, where it's really a place that we can safely share our, our deep wounds, past hurts, things we've done, things that have been to us, and, and know that other people are doing the same thing. And in that acceptance of mutual knowing and mutual acceptance, mutually sharing with one another, I, I think that's the place we begin to encounter what the love of Christ is. And so if, if a brother of, of mine in Christ knows all of my stuff and I know all of his and we're still committed to the group and to one another, it's like, wow, if, if he can love and accept me that way, now I start to feel at a deeper level that, that so does Christ. That's how God feels about me. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian from the 1930s and 40s, wrote a lot about this in his books, you know, The Cost of Discipleship, or a favorite book of mine, a little book called Life Together. He just, he writes about the ways in which others um, can really give to us the sense of Christ's love and forgiveness, because we see it in and through them. And as we receive it from them, we realize that an amplified level, that's what Christ is giving me. And so I, I just see the importance of that, you know, quick story of, of my own journey, when I went to Pure Desire, Dr. Ted Roberts was my counselor, and he told me I had to be in a group. And I was like, you know, I argued. I was like, like, can't we just do the counseling? Keep it between you and me. Let's keep this private. Why do I need a group? And 
I gave all the typical excuses of I'm too busy and I've got too many meetings and a young family. And, but he said to me, he said, Nick, if, if you don't make a group, your top shelf priority, this probably won't work because he saw my need for community. And so they sent me to a group that at the time was about 30 minutes away from where I lived. And uh, he said, I, I didn't need to tell them I was a pastor, which I look back and I think is really funny because I don't know how I could have ever gone through a whole seven pillars of freedom group and not revealed like what I did for a living. But yeah. anyway, I, I remember, you know, I drove up to that first group and I just, I was dreading it. I didn't want to meet new people. I didn't want to have to tell my story. Like I just, I didn't, I didn't have room for this in my life was my feeling. And, and yet, as I got to that first meeting and the guys there, they'd already been meeting for a few weeks. They were very open about their story. They, I mean, they were just without shame, just like, well, here's why I'm here. And, you know, I've lost my job because I was looking at pornography on the job. And, and they just went around with such shameless authenticity of, of finding grace and acceptance for one another. And it, it didn't take long. And I felt pulled into that. And I'm sharing things I had never shared with another man before and parts of my story that I had you know, vowed I would take to my grave with me because they, you know, stuff from teenage years that just felt too messy and too ugly. And, um, and I was sharing it. And, and as I would, you know, you kind of brace for, okay, here it comes, here comes the how could you and what's wrong with you. And man, I'd share some of that deep, ugly stuff. And it'd be like, wow, thanks for sharing, Nick. We're so glad you're here. I was like, whoa, oh, okay, okay. Um, that reorienting of my thought process. And I realized about maybe two to three months into this experience, I was driving up to the group again. And I, I actually kind of laughed out loud because I realized I had been looking forward to that night all week long. Like it had become my favorite night of the week. And I thought, what is wrong with me? I'm going to this group that has never seen me preach. So they've never seen me do the things that I feel really good at. All they know about me is the crummy stuff I've done. And I can't wait to get there to share more. Like, this is ridiculous. It's so funny. Uh, but it was one of those holy moments, right, where I, I just felt like God spoke to me on that drive. And he said, Nick, it's the only place in your whole life where you feel like you're being real. Yeah. And, and I realized that was the truth that, like, everywhere else, I still had the sense that I needed to kind of protect the secrets. And, like, even with my wife that was in the counseling process with me, I was still trying to present to her this cleaned up version of the good husband I wanted to be. And But at this group, it was like I was just blah, right? I was just Nick with my problems and flaws. And in that place, just getting to be me and, and finding acceptance and value. I, I think that's what began to really create change because I understood the love of God in a place I'd really never felt it before. And, and I think that's what every one of us needs. And whether it's a pure desire group or somewhere else, that place where we go and it's just us and, and we're loved and we're accepted and the power that has to dispel shame and, and then also give us confidence to walk into those other places in our life and be more real, be more authentic um, is really, really powerful. Yeah. I always felt like it was a breath of fresh air when I was a part of a group, being able to share my life, what I had done um, the week before, and not just what I'd done behavior, but what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, you know, my past. And just to be able to share that with other men was, like yeah. I said, a breath of fresh air. And it was one of the things in my life that definitely just put a, a pin in that shame. And maybe that's not even the right word. It, it just it put me on a different path. And, and shame was one of those things that it just dissipated um, as you breathed in that fresh air of yeah. that acceptance that God was giving through community. 
And I've heard this time and time again from people. And I think, Nick, you touched on this. And I, I felt the same way. And I'm sure, Matt, you did too. That, hey, I can do this on my own. I don't have enough time to join a group. I don't have enough time to go on the recovery journey. It's just going to be me beating this on my own. And I can do it. I can do it. Right? We think we can. Can you talk about that, Nick? And I think you, you have to a degree. But what happens there? I mean, does shame compound? Does it progressively get worse if we don't? allow community into our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what we need to realize is that isolation is the breeding ground of shame. And, and the idea that I could fix shame by myself, now I'm trying to think of an illustration that just that, that would, that would bring that to life. But you know, what we're talking about with shame is shame is really rooted in this fear that if the full reality of my past of my life was known, I would be rejected. That that's really a relational problem the fear that others would reject me. So you look at that and say, how can I fix that alone? I, I can't. I really can't fix it until I have healthy new experiences of relationships where the full truth of me is known and I'm not rejected, I'm loved, I'm embraced, I'm accepted. That's what reorients our brain, just as I shared in my story, like to a new way of thinking because we experience it. So the, the idea that I could somehow fix that on my own without anyone else participating, there would still be this lingering doubt, right? that would say, yeah, I know you keep telling yourself that you're not worthless and you're good enough, but because you've never really shared that part of your life with someone else, that fear of, I think they would actually reject me, will keep us stuck in isolation. And it's exactly why so many men and women who are struggling with pornography stay stuck because we've kind of been trained, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we've been trained that we well, need to go fix this, go try harder, pray more, read your Bible more. And we're doing that. Like, we're like, I'm doing all of it. Why am I still struggling? Like, well, because I'm struggling alone. I'm in isolation. And I tell people that, you know, the sickness and the cure can't be the same medicine. Hmm. The sickness really is isolation, separation, secretiveness. And, and so the cure can't be the same thing. Like the cure is walking out of our dark cave into places of God's light with other people that really begins to heal us. So it, it's frightening because there's a risk there, right? There's a risk to walk into any relationship or any safe place, any group, and, and start to open those doors of my life. But apart from that risk, apart from that, there's really no other remedy. We will stay stuck in isolation um, if we're battling alone. Yeah, it's it's been amazing to see just through our ministry, which is a lot younger than Pure Desire, the power of groups. And when I look at the testimonies that we've had, I go, man, pretty much all of the testimonies, 95% of the testimonies are from guys in groups. And what we do is we, well, what we used to do, we used to ask for a 12 week commitment to these groups. And then literally every single group member in all of the groups that we started at 12 weeks, they said, no, we just want to keep on going. Yeah. And there were all those excuses at the start. I'm too busy and I don't know the people and I don't yeah. want to share my dirt. Could we and then do they it all in six did. weeks? Could we do this in double time? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. condensed version? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then, and then one of the groups is like, man, I, I want, we want to go two hours, not just an hour. Like, so when we want to create a culture of grace, and say in the home, and we have a lot of shame in our lives. How do we respond when somebody else has the shame and they're opening up to us? Like, how do we like you say it's a marriage and say some say a husband is wrapped in shame and we want to disclose to the wife, but maybe they, they're not sure how the wife will react. How do we deal with the shame in that scenario? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the way I hear you ask the question, I think it's vital that if, if we can recognize I'm wrapped up in my own shame 
I am not going to be very adept at offering grace or helping someone else through their shame when I'm seeing it through the lens of my own. And so if, if a, a husband or a wife, you know, is really looking to finally address that and they realize like, I don't know how my spouse will receive this. I don't know if they're ready. That goes back to what we've been saying about the value and the power of group. The, the starting place may not be our spouse because I mean, let's face it, there, there, are, there are things on the line in a marriage when I'm revealing my sexual brokenness, particularly if I'm going to reveal things that have happened in the time frame of our relationship that they don't know, it's going to be hurtful. It's going to be painful. It's going to be a process. Now, I would back that up by saying they do need to know, but that might not be the best place to start because right. of your ability to be real. If you're still wrapped up in your own shame, and this is what we, we hear about all the time, we will try to like get open, but we're still hiding maybe the, the most grievous parts or the things that feel the most shameful to us, or we kind of sugarcoat parts that really we shouldn't. And then, then what will happen for the spouse who's now triggered and feeling wounded, they, they kind of get this hyper vigilant alertness of, oh my gosh, there's these things going on I didn't know about. And now they're in this, I need to know absolutely everything mode. And so they're, they're kind of this persistent, I need to know, I need to know. And, and now the spouse is maybe revealing all kinds of things that are, are too detailed are not helpful to recovery. And it, it can be kind of like this, you know, atomic bomb that goes off in the marriage. And many of us listening to this podcast have worked through those bombs in our marriage and it's not pleasant. Um, and if you have though, there's redemption in that. I mean, God can use those moments, but ideally what could happen is if you realize you're in that situation that should be the motivation to say, I need to do whatever I can to start processing this first, going to a counselor, getting involved in a pure desire group, going to pure victory, finding a place that I can start to get real and take off those layers so that when I move towards authenticity with my spouse, I'm not doing it out of shame. Because when I, when I confess out of shame, the truth is I'm still going to be rationalizing. I'm going to be in denial. Right. I'm going to be minimizing and maybe most dangerous for a spouse, I'm going to be blaming. Yeah. And that may not even be conscientious. That may just be a byproduct of the things I don't know how to face. And so as I'm starting to face them, it, it, it can make the spouse feel blamed or, or like they're the problem. And, and now we're just compounding the pain. So that's why it's so important. If, if we realize, again, to your question, that we're wrapped up in shame we need to find a safe place to deal with it. And that's what a men's group at Pure Desire and what you guys are doing. That's what it's all about. Like, let's start that journey so that when we get real with our spouse, we're doing it out of a very humble place, a very self-aware place. And we can tell an honest, forthright story that will help our spouse because it's going to be painful. You know, however it comes out, it's going to be painful. Yeah. But if, if, if we're able to say it in a way that's truthful and complete, we can kind of face all that pain in it in a constructive way at once and start rebuilding versus again, the other pieces, you guys know what typically happens in a relationship is a little bit, bit gets told. And then maybe they come back around and a little more gets told and a little more and a little more. And, and what happens for the spouse in that scenario. And this is really my wife's story. They feel like they're falling into a deep pit and they don't know where the bottom is. And it, yeah. it's terrifying. It's like, what more is going to come out? And, and that's not a healthy place to be. So Run after that's my advice. Run after your own healing, and in the right timing, God will lead you into that healing process with your spouse. Yeah, that's such critical, critical advice um, and truth that you're sharing, Nick. Because I think what happens for spouses with wives in particular, because I mean that's we're coming at it from from our perspective, but they if they hear over and over again 
this this language that maybe isn't fully revealing what's going on, but it gives you just a little bit and a little bit. And, and if that goes on and on and on, the trauma that occurs um, for a spouse that's hearing that for, in their yeah. marriage is is so painful. And it, it creates such lack of trust as well. Because every time, you know, if I did that to my wife over and over again, every time that I want to talk to her, she's like, oh, here we go again. And then the lack of the lack of communication then just becomes, I guess, a protective thing, right? I don't want to talk to you anymore because I don't want to know. Yeah. And then the intimacy just gets destroyed in, in the marriage. Yeah. So, you know, what's, what's kind yeah. of the message of hope that you would tell married couples that maybe that's their story? Yeah, I, I think the, the fear of what I don't know uh, can drive people further apart than anything. I mean, that, that lack of trust. So, you know, a marriage is really meant to be built on intimacy and trust. And when there are these continued revelations, both intimacy and trust are being undermined, which makes the relationship very, very difficult to sustain. So uh, the, the hope is that if, if that's where you're stuck, I mean, that is why we need groups and potentially we need counseling. So that we get a new foundation of the, the truth is out there. You know, in my process and a lot of what Pure Desire does, part of that journey is what we call the disclosure process. That is a, a, a written out, fact-based, fully, de- not fully detailed, but fully accurate report of my sexual history that then my spouse gets. And in the counseling process includes a polygraph where I'm being asked, you know, hooked up to the machine, like, have you been fully truthful? Is this everything? So that when the spouse gets it, they can know this is the bottom line. And I do know everything. And that doesn't mean they need to know every little detail of every lust or fantasy. I mean, that's where people get lost in the woods in a hurry. But, but where my wife does know the, the full spectrum of the action, let's put it that way. And then we can start to rebuild. And here's what I'll say we hear over and over in counseling that, that spouses, betrayed spouses will say, it's not necessarily what they've done that I've had the hardest time with. It's the lies and the deception. Mm-hmm. If, if I just knew the truth, we could rebuild. But it's when I feel like there's continued lies and deception. And that's what we see like in our counseling program. The couples that don't make it is when the struggling spouse continues to try to deceive, manipulate, or withhold things that they just don't want to talk about. And so the other spouse feels like, I don't know what to trust. And so I don't trust anything. So that's where the hope is at. Like we might feel like, man, I've, I've done this thing. And if they hear about this thing, it's over. What I would say from my perspective, we've worked with couples that, I mean, the worst imaginable stuff is part of their story. But when there is sincerity on the part of the struggler and, and they are truly humble and repentant and honest and forthright looking to rebuild, it's amazing how the heart of the spouse will move towards them. Now, I don't, I don't want to make that a guarantee uh, because there's always exceptions, right? But but as a general rule of thumb, when we're humbled and honest and no longer living in hiding, our spouse can now begin to rebuild trust. And over time, we can show our sincerity to rebuild that trust. But as long as we're stuck in the half confessions, half covering up, I mean, it, it is just like perpetuating the pain. And there, there isn't what I would say to that couple also, or maybe that man that's trying to just hold it all together and not ever really have to share the whole story. Like, there's not a whole lot of hope in that situation. The stories that I hear about and, you know, looking at the 10 years where I did that, it just goes from bad to worse. And, and the sooner we realize it and say, okay, time out, it's time to get off this crazy train and really face it. That's where God can work. So get out of the, get out of the half availed measures as, you know, AA groups would put it, half availed measures accomplish nothing. 
go all in. And it's, it's hard and it's, there's definitely some pain you got to face, but man, the outcome or the benefit of really dealing with it is really beyond what we could describe. Yeah. You become new. You become new. Like I didn't know that I had this level of freedom or peace or, you know, guy, like I'm sure you've heard, like I can smile from my innermost being now for the first time in 20 years. And it's amazing. Um, one thing I was, one, one thing that I, that I kind of try to become aware of in my life is leading this as you are Nick and Braden with marriage, uh, talking about pornography. We, I think so much about shame with pornography, but then I, uh, lately I'm going, what about other parts of my life? And a few months ago I was, I was operating in shame. I wasn't telling my wife something that I was struggling with and it wasn't anything sexual. And, and I just felt the Lord saying to me, he's like, you know, if you, if you beat this on your own, if you have a victory on this, on your own in this area, the celebration that you have is limited because you're not welcoming her into your victory. And so you're not even going to be able to celebrate the victory and you're going to get the glory and the glory is not going to go to God. It's not going to go to, to her supporting you. And, you know, it's not a healthy scenario if we beat it on our own, even if we get there and we probably won't beat it on our own, but even if we do, it's still not good for us. But yeah. there's victory when we celebrate with other people and, and it builds that relationship. Can you talk about what your relationship is now with your wife? I'm assuming obviously ministry is going great. You're growing a phenomenal ministry. But just in the home, your wife had that brokenness to, to work through. What's it like yeah. for you now compared to those 10 years? Yeah, you know, I mean, I have to be careful to say like it didn't make us perfect. You know, it didn't make our marriage perfect all the time or easy. I mean, there's still hard work to do of, of establishing healthy rhythms and you know, for us being committed to a weekly couple night, a weekly date night where we just can get away from our four kids and remember that that we're friends and we we enjoy each other's company and kind of get out of the, the grind is so important. But, you know, in our relationship, we really we still refer to our marriage as before pure desire and after pure desire wow. because of, of how deeply it changed the way we relate. Not, you know, it's not just that, oh, I revealed all my stuff because she already knew a lot of it. What what we didn't have was was handholds to like move forward. And the things that we discovered, like about our family of origin issues, the the pain and the wounds that drive me and the, the pain and the wounds that drive her and learning how to be compassionate for one another in those areas has just grown so much that I, I feel like in our marriage, there's just, there's kind of an ease of relationship in terms of we, we feel really comfortable in one another's company and it doesn't feel forced or put on. It's, there's like this, this knowledge of I know you and you know me and and I know you're not perfect. You know, I'm not perfect, but we're going to face it together. And when we hit those speed bumps, because I think every marriage does when there's stuff I need to be real about, or she needs to face, I I feel like we have better tools to walk into those conversations of, of analyzing, okay, why did this happen? What was triggering you? What was going on in your thought process? What emotions were you feeling? And it's so valuable to be able to go to my wife and say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for how I reacted early today because I realized in that moment, I was really feeling a sense of worthlessness. And, and when you said this, this is why it triggered it. And I'm not saying that was your fault, but I wanted you to know what I was reacting to was actually my own fears of worthlessness. And I came across as really angry or defensive. And I'm sorry for that. And, and my wife, see, yeah, I, okay, I kind of thought that was going on and, and we can talk about it where before yeah. it would just be like, you know, we would both just be angry and not really able to define why or how to address it. And, and you just like, just like we say, pornography is not the issue. It's the symptom. I think in our marriages, the stuff we fight about tends not to actually be the issue. It's actually the deeper stuff that we're feeling and responding to that we may not be aware of. And 
Pure Desire just gave us the tools to become self-aware and to recognize what are the things I'm reacting to. And when we bring that into the conversation, because now I'm not pointing at you and what you've done, I'm, I'm looking at my own heart saying, this is what I'm responding to. And, and here's what I need to own. And when your spouse is doing that as well, it's like, wow, that's, that's just a real game changer in marriage. Yeah, it really is. You're describing a deeper intimacy uh, of what you experienced in your marriage. And I mean, our understanding of intimacy, often we think it's just a sexual thing, but no, it's not. Intimacy is so much richer and deeper than yeah. that area. And I know for, you know, one of the things that I, I've learned and my wife and I have learned so well um, and are still learning is that to really think the best of one another and to work at that. And one of the things that porn robs us of is the ability really to do that because how can we think the best of our spouse when we don't think the best of us, right? Mm -hmm. Of ourselves. Yeah. How do we do that? Because we can't receive that from God. How can we give that to another? And I think that, you know, intimacy starts to be rebuilt when you're able to, you know, as you're saying, go on the journey of recovery and then getting that shame out of your life so that you can give and receive in such a more freer way and your marriage will just be affected in such a deeper, better, more rich way yeah. than it ever could be if yeah. you try to do this on your own and do half measures, as you said, Nick, right? Yeah. Like, I'm only going to share so much. And uh, I think that it's just not going to work. So if those of you listening out there, that's where you are, we just really encourage you and challenge you to take the steps necessary to get in a group. Um, look into what that means um, and the recovery journey so that you can experience a deeper growing intimacy in your marriage if you are married. And then if you're not, just a greater uh, level of, of intimacy with God. Um, and we all need that, right? Not even those that are married, yeah. but us as those that aren't. So um, I think that this is something that, I mean, it, it convicts uh, on a level that I think we just, we desire that. So thanks for sharing that, Nick. Um, the other unique area that I just wanted to ask you quickly about is you had a special kind of experience with this in the sense that you were a pastor, you were a leader. I mean, you still are a leader. Um, but what I mean by that is it can be really difficult for someone that has maybe a platform, maybe has a level of responsibility over others to come out and share about what they're going through and what's going on behind closed doors. Can you just talk about that? Because I've, I mean, we, Matt and I were ministry leaders. We've seen this with our friends and other people as well that, they have that, that level of, well, I need to maintain a certain image. I don't want that to come crashing down because it's going to hurt people. And we get that. But what do you do when you're a leader who maybe has some stuff behind closed doors, specifically maybe porn and shame? What would you talk to them about in regards to this? You know, it's definitely one of those things that the longer it goes, the more dangerous it becomes. You know, when we don't address it, and we, we stay stuck and I'm going to fix it by myself. And I've, I've got this public ministry, so no one needs to know. I mean, we're all watching in public news articles and things that come out about Christian leaders. Like, I don't believe those leaders ever intended to get there, but that's what happens. Like it just grows over time. And so if we're stuck in that hiding place, or like, I just, I can't reveal, like it, the, the longer it goes, the more dangerous it gets. And so facing it, and I'm, I'm just so thankful that God had put us in a, an environment where I, I sensed that there was grace from my elder board, because as a young leader, I had been honest with them and, They'd prayed for me and yeah, they'd been pointed to say, you know, this needs to stop. And, but, but there was enough grace there that I felt like they would be supportive of knowing we were pursuing counseling for this. So that was really a key piece for us is as we entered into counseling, I was honest with my elders to say, this is what we're doing. And having their support was huge because I knew I didn't have to hide in my environment. And then it was at the end of that process that because they already were supportive and my wife was engaged in the process 
when it came to saying we, we need to tell the church, it wasn't a surprise to the leaders or to my wife, like to the congregation, sure, but that's kind of a, a strategy or just something I would think about for leaders. Like it, it needs to start with the people that you're accountable to. And like I said in, earlier in, the, in this interview, not every, that doesn't mean everyone needs to know everything all the time. You know, so when I did a public disclosure in my church body, I, I didn't go into the details, right? Like I was honest to say I've been addicted to pornography for 15 years. I've struggled. I asked for their forgiveness for failing in that area. But I, I didn't go real detailed into the issues of my struggle. I, I did talk more about the path of in high school and in college and believing it would go away and it hasn't. So I, I tried to help people see both the path in and then the healing journey. And I think that's so key that what, what people see in us really will determine what they feel free to pursue as well. And so if, if we're stuck in kind of a performance mode as a leader, the people we lead feel the same way. So I, I think our authenticity, we're giving people that gift of going first. You know, and, and so one of the things for me, like right now, 11 years later, I'm still in a weekly group going through the seven pillars, both for myself. I mean, I just, that place I can be totally real and honest and, and to help others. But the byproduct of that is in the public things I do, you know, like even doing an interview like this, I, I know there's places in my life I'm 100% real and authentic. And so I, I just bring into, I feel like every conversation that sense of I'm, I'm being authentic and having some discernment of where can I be real with others versus as a leader feeling like, well, I'm always in performance mode. So I think even for those leaders that feel like, well, I've, I've found a lot of help, but, but there's not that kind of place in their world, man, find that, find that place you can be real. Because I think when we know we're doing it on a, a regular basis in our interior life, it just translates into our ministry. There's a, a humility, there's an authenticity that that will mark everything we do and that invites other people to do the same kind of thing in their life. Nick, you are authentic. And even, I mean, this is the first time we've chatted. We've emailed back and forth, but Brad and I haven't had a, haven't had a chat with you before, but we've just chatted before today about listening to you, even just looking at your picture. You're like, man, how could you not like this guy? You just, <laughs> you've done, you've done a you. great job. Yeah, you bet. And, um, and so we love it. We love you spent the time with us. Any last thoughts before we close out today? Yeah, you know, I, I think the the journey, again, to say this journey is worthwhile and, and the outcome is worth whatever cost it takes to get going, to remember that there is an enemy that wants to keep us in isolation, secretiveness, hiding. So if, if right now anyone's listening and there's a part of you going, ah, I don't really need this. I don't know if it's worth it. Like, recognize some of that's the voice of the enemy who wants you to stay in darkness and, and isolation. But God calls us into the light. And that light isn't just about, you know, exposing the depths of our sin. That light is community. That light is hope. That light is love. That light is togetherness. And it's good. And it might hurt our eyes at first when we walk into the light. But if we'll stay in it and let our eyes adjust, it's like, man. And I hear this all the time. Like, Why didn't I do this 10 years earlier? Why didn't I do this five years? Why didn't I do this 20 years ago? Because we see how good it is. So you know, take the journey. It's worth it. Um, and if they want to connect more with us, you know, puredesire.org, everything we've talked about, Pure Desire is there at the website. And they can find my book, Safe, where I, I talk a lot about that culture of shame versus grace. And so if they want to hear more kind of that side of our story, um, the book Safe is a great place to read more. 
I would recommend you picking that book up and we will put that in the show notes. So if you want to click on that link and, and pick that book up, we, we, uh, we will make that available to you. So thank you so much, Nick, for everything today. I think that this is something that will have a lasting impact on those that are listening. So we appreciate you appreciate pure desire and um, the ministry that you are, you guys are engaged in. So thank you so much. And for all the listeners out there, thanks again for checking in this week. We are just so blessed that you're walking in this journey with us. We hope the best for you this week. We pray the best for you this week, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more, please visit purevictorypodcast.com to subscribe. This podcast was made possible by the generous donations of our subscribers. If you would like to help support the cause financially, once again, please visit purevictorypodcast.com.